<laughs> All right. In case you don't remember, on August 5th, 2010, 33 miners were trapped 2,300 feet below the surface in a gold and copper mine. And people wondered if they even survived that initial cave-in. And there was no contact with them for 17 days. But all told, these miners survived 69 days. Just to give you perspective, the previous record for that kind of situation was 25 days. Now what was really encouraging about the story of these men was the role of faith involved. One of the miners, Jose Henriquez, was known as the pastor of the group. You see, when it became obvious that the miners would need a miracle to somehow survive, they asked him to pray, even though some of the men were atheists or didn't believe in God in various situations. They asked him to lead them in a prayer, and he did. And prayer meetings actually became a fixture in their daily life below the surface. Henrique said later, We had one desperate prayer cry and one purpose together. We were all praying, Lord, open up a door of escape. There's no other way unless you do it. That was their prayer. And these two-a-day prayer meetings then evolved into Bible studies as well. And the men started changing there underneath the surface. And they started changing in their hearts as well. They went from desperation to hope. Enriquez reported that 22 of the 33 men made professions of faith. And it was interesting that once they did start establishing contact, the wives who were on the surface noticed the change in their husbands. They went from going and swearing at them as they did previously to preaching to them about Christ. They saw answered prayer as in one case a man fell sick and they prayed for him and he recovered. All 33 miners were eventually rescued to the surface without any major sicknesses or illnesses or injuries. The world stood amazed. It is estimated that about one billion people watched it live when they were rescued. God was present with them and delivered them in their trial. Indeed, before they were rescued, one of the miners sent up a note to the surface and he said, quote, there are actually 34 of us because God has never left us down here. Now, as great a story of deliverance as that is, our passage today exceeds it. As we continue our series on the book of Daniel, we come to Daniel 3, which is often called the fiery furnace. It's a familiar passage that perhaps we have read and heard many times before. But my hope is it will be fresh to us this morning as we hear how it fits into the overall storyline of Daniel and how it is relevant for our lives today. In the New Testament, Paul says these words in Romans 15. He says, For whatever was written in former days, speaking of the Old Testament, was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And that's what I hope for us today as we 
draw from this deep well of the Old Testament, we are encouraged today. And I also pray that we will see how this passage points to Christ, the one to whom all Old Testament scriptures ultimately find their fulfillment. So just to recap briefly, here's where we left off from last week in chapter 2. Remember the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, had a troubling dream and summoned his advisors, the wise men, to interpret the dream. But he wouldn't tell them the content of the dream beforehand. And if they couldn't do it, he would kill all of the wise men. Daniel wasn't present when he summoned these wise men the first time. And so when he is informed, he believes that God will reveal to him both the content and the interpretation of the dream. And so he does. Now as for the dream itself, you remember the dream the the king had was this huge image, this statue of a man that was enormous and frightening to him. And it had four parts made of different metals. And each part represented a world kingdom and power that would flow in succession. It it depicted the next 600 years of world powers. The Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Now the head of the statue was made of gold and it symbolized the Babylonians. In addition to the statue, a stone was cut out. And this stone smashed the statue. And it also grew to the size of a great mountain and eventually filled the whole earth. And of course we saw last week that this stone symbolized the kingdom of God that will reign forever. And the king, when he hears these words, he falls on the ground and actually pays homage to Daniel. The king declares that the Lord is God of gods. Now the question arises was whether the king became an actual believer or a follower in the Lord. Well, we'll see as we turn to chapter 3 today a little bit more light on that question. But also the king promotes Daniel to rule over the whole province of Babylon. And Daniel's first request is that his three companions would be promoted. And thus they are. And so then more than likely they are spread out from the city of Babylon while Daniel remains there in the city. So that sets the stage for Daniel chapter 3, the fiery furnace. Now the first part of the story, let me turn to it myself here, is the king dedicates the golden image. The king dedicates the golden image. So let's read the first seven verses here. Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plains of Dora, on the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come in to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, 
harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the, the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So it's safe to assume, I think, at this point, that a number of years had passed since the closing of chapter 2. Remember that Daniel covers about 60 years in length. So there probably was a number of years between King Nebuchadnezzar hearing about this dream and then him actually making this enormous statue. And it was quite a sight to behold. 90 feet tall, about 9 feet wide. We're not told what it looked like. Perhaps it looked like Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps it looked like one of his gods, the Babylonian gods. You say, well, why did he make this image entirely of gold? Well, in the dream, again, you remember, the head of the statue was the Babylonians, right? They were the head of the statue. And I think what was going on here in Nebuchadnezzar's mind was that the various other parts represented different kingdoms. And so Nebuchadnezzar decided, you know what, I'm not going to make a statue that has all of these various parts and different metals. I'm going to make a statue entirely of gold. In other words, there's not going to be successive kingdoms. There's only going to be my kingdom, the one that was made of gold. My kingdom's going to go on forever. The king wanted to make sure of this reality. Did you notice how many times in those just seven verses it says the king set up the image? Seven times it says that. The writer is really trying to communicate that King Nebuchadnezzar, this was his burden, his initiative. He wanted to make this huge statue all the way of gold to symbolize his enduring authority. It's kind of interesting. Archaeologists have discovered a document from the time of Nebuchadnezzar that mentions the king's statue and a desire for his reign to go on forever. I always love it when we see this archaeological things that support that the Bible is a historical, real religion, not just a book of myths and fables. Now, after he builds the image, he, mans, he, he concocts this grand dedication, and he, he calls together the various leaders of the Babylonian Empire, these satraps and governors and magistrates and so on. And he seems that this dedication probably wasn't for the general public, but just for the leaders there, and they're told that when they hear the instruments being played, they're to bow down before the golden image, or they will be thrown into the fiery furnace. And so when that happens, we know what does. They bow down before the image. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar, no doubt, saw this as a religious event, that they were worshiping. But he also, no doubt, saw that this is an opportunity to consolidate his power, which he wanted to go on forever, right? I think that's a pretty good tip-off when we were wondering about old King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, whether his faith was authentic. Not looking good so far, right? 
he took that dream and then wanted to make this idol to symbolize his enduring power. But also I want you to point out one other thing that's very fascinating. Notice how he gathered these leaders from different regions and languages. Anybody catch an echo of Genesis 11 in there? With the very famous Tower of Babel incident? It actually occurred in the same vicinity, in a plain in Babylon, where the nations of the earth gathered together to unite and to show their might and their glory. I think here we're seeing again this king trying to unite all these different nations and showcase human pride and power and glory. We know that God frustrated those plans in Genesis 11, and he'll do so once again. So, so far in our story, though, no mention has been made of Daniel and his three companions. Were they present at the dedication? As we're going to see, Daniel wasn't present. In fact, for some unknown reason, he doesn't appear in this story at all. But the spotlight shifts over to his three companions. They're going to be pushed up to center stage. Because this leads to the second part of the story, the accusation against the three Jewish leaders. So let's read this accusation in verses 8 to 12. It says, Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember, those were their Babylonian names. They have been renamed. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So these Chaldeans, who were part of the wise men of the king, they came forward and they accused these Jewish leaders of not bowing down and not worshiping the golden image. And they remind the king about his decree that if this took place, that they should be thrown into the fiery furnace. And in verse 12, not only do they remind them about that general decree that he had made, but they specifically point out who it was that was standing up. These Chaldeans are really good at their accusation. I mean, they really played it up. They, boy, they were ignoring you, king. And you remember what you said? What are you going to do about it? Well, as you can see and can guess, the king wasn't too happy. So in verse 13, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands. So the king is irate. He summons these leaders. He asks them if it is true that they don't worship his gods in the golden image. He doesn't even listen for the answer. He gives them an ultimatum. Either you worship the golden image or you'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. 
And he closes the ultimatum with a taunt, saying, what God would actually be able to deliver you? It's amazing how quickly he forgot about how God had revealed this interpretation to Daniel that he thought no God could do. So despite the king's rage, the threat of this fiery furnace, now we get to the, to the climax, in a sense, of the story to me, where the Jewish leaders stand there unfazed. Let us read their powerful response that they give to the king. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Friends, these men have this resolute confidence in God. They fully believe that God can deliver them out of the king's hand. You say, why did they have that confidence? They knew their king's, I mean, excuse me, they knew their nation's history. They knew their scriptures. They knew that they were a people founded on the fundamental truth that God is a God who delivers. They knew about their nation being enslaved in Egypt and how God sent deliverance by sending those ten plagues which released them from the hand of that king, Pharaoh of Egypt. But even then, Pharaoh changed his mind, right? And he wanted to kill them out in the wilderness. And so therefore, God delivered his people once again by parting the Red Sea so that they could go free. They remembered how God had delivered David from the hand of the mighty giant Goliath. They remembered how God had delivered, even in recent days, the kingdom of Judah from Assyria when they threatened to invade them and take over the city of Jerusalem. God sent an angel and slew 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one day. And in their own lives they saw God's hand of deliverance. They were on the execution block just a short time ago, but yet God showed Daniel the interpretation of the dream and their lives were spared. They knew God is a God who delivers. They had full confidence. And they add that even if the Lord doesn't deliver them from the fire... They're not going to serve the Babylonian gods or bow down to that image. They knew what the Ten Commandments had told the people of Israel, and particularly the Second Commandment, that you shall have no gods that you bow down to. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. They were willing not to bow down regardless of what would happen, even if it might be the Lord's will for them to suffer. They were that resolved to honor the Lord that way. Friends, that's true faith. That is true faith. A deep trust in God. Not just Faith isn't just optimism, that things will somehow work themselves out. Or faith isn't just somehow faith in faith, you know, that you believe in belief. 
No, faith is believe in God, the God who orchestrates circumstances and controls all of human history, as we've been seeing in Daniel. They believe this God could deliver them. Now, someone might say, well, why did they acknowledge the possibility that maybe God doesn't deliver them? Were they doubting? I don't think they were doubting. I think they're just simply recognizing that they're mere humans, and God is God. And He does what He wants to do. But regardless, we're going to trust Him. In his book on Daniel, Brian Chappelle says, True faith simply acknowledges that God knows and does what is right. True faith does not pretend to know all that must be done. Any faith that insists that God must do things our way in order for Him to be truly faithful does not truly trust Him. In other words, if you think God has to do this and do that because you think that's the only way God can operate, is that really faith and trust in God? That's right. Such faith, he says, is forced to rest on limited human insight and ability. So finally we come to the last part of the story, the deliverance of the three Jewish leaders, verses 19 to 23. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven more times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these three men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. So the king is really, really mad, more than ever, and he's irate. He orders the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than before. Tried to visualize what this furnace is like, and I couldn't really find anything online. There's a possible picture of what this thing might have looked like. You know, it was obviously large and imposing and could have been big enough where people could have seen what was going on there in the furnace. And so, as I said there, he orders his mighty men to tie up the three Jewish leaders and to put them in to the fiery furnace. And the story mentions how they're fully clothed, how they have cloaks and all these different garments on. That's going to be important here in a moment. But as it says there, the furnace was so hot, he ordered it to be so hot, I heard that it could have perhaps been as high as a thousand degrees, all right, that the mighty men catch on fire when they're throwing them into the furnace. That's how strong this furnace was, then the flame coming out of it, that these mighty men were just engulfed in the flames. And from a human level, you think, well, that's it. God can't do anymore, right? That's all there is. Certainly the Jewish leaders were consumed in the flames. So now we come to the great deliverance. Verses 24 and following. It says there, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of 
the gods. So the king is astonished. He sees something remarkable. So remarkable. And he asks his counselors again, did we throw three men in? Just remind me here, guys. Did we throw three in? And they said, yeah. They said, well, that's not what I see. I see four men in the fire. And these men aren't hurt, but they're actually walking around. And the fourth man that's in there, he doesn't look like a man. He looks, as he says, they're like a son of the gods. Some type of supernatural being was in there in the furnace. Now, who is this? Well, Christians have believed through the ages that it was either an angel or it was Christ before he was incarnated. I don't think we can be certain either way, dogmatically, one way or another. Personally, I lean toward thinking it was an angel because it says in verse 28, the king himself says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants. Angels appear a lot in Daniel, and we see in Daniel 6 in another great rescue deliverance that it was an angel who closed, clothed, excuse me, closed the mouth of the lion. But either way, whether it was an angel or a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, it was a powerful display of God's care for His people. And finally, let's read how the story concludes here in verses 26 and following. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the, to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses shall be laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So the king comes near the door and he tells them to come out. And they, the king and the officials observed how the fire didn't affect them at all, right? Their hair wasn't singed, their clothes weren't burned. And they didn't even have the smell of smoke on them. I think it's the, the Lord's way of just saying that there wasn't even a possibility of somehow saying that, well, this was a fraud or this was a fake. No, it was a complete and total deliverance that God had performed in the lives of these men. And as for the king, once again, he praises the Lord, just like he did when Daniel revealed the dream to him. The king, I think, was genuinely amazed. And so the question arises to the surface then. So is Nebuchadnezzar now a believer in the Lord? Well... We'll see next week whether he truly understood and believed. I'll just give a little hint, as for now, where he's probably at. Notice that he says that it is their God, not his God. I think that's important. 
in the Old Testament, for example, in the book of Ruth, she was from Moab, but she worshipped the God of Israel. And so she tells her mother-in-law in Ruth 1.16, Ruth says to her, Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. We've yet to see that from Nebuchadnezzar, haven't we? But nonetheless, it's still pretty powerful that he makes this declaration that no one should speak against the Lord or die. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, he's just flying all over the place, isn't he? He's going from one mood swing to the other. At one point he's saying he's taunting the Lord, and then the next minute he's saying, if you taunt him, I'm going to kill you. Must have been pretty uh, interesting to be one of the wise men working around Nebuchadnezzar. But regardless, the Jewish exiles now enjoyed greater protection while living under these Babylonian rulers. And as for the three Jewish men, they get promoted. Definitely had to earn your promotions around there, didn't you? It's quite a lot. As we close, I just want to focus on what we've been seeing here. There's so much to focus on here in these passages, and even we're talking about with Daniel, so many incredible themes, and you know, each week is kind of a struggle. What do you say? What do you not say? There's stuff we could talk about here about the, the, the fact that sometimes we're to obey God and not man when those things clash. Um, we'll talk about that in chapter 6 when, again, this, that theme comes up. Try to package all that together and kind of learn what we can see from Daniel when it comes to that. How do we live as Christians when the kingdom of God clashes with the kingdom of man? But I want to focus here this morning as we close out on this theme of God as our de- deliverer. We may not face a situation like the miners in Chile or these three Jewish leaders, but all of us will face trials of various kinds that test our faith. Indeed, 1 Peter 4.12 speaks of our suffering this way, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something were strange were happening to you. As we close out here, I just want this deeply ingrained in our minds, this truth, that every trial, every fiery trial that you find yourselves in is a win-win situation. It's a win-win situation. Do you know what I mean by win-win? That regardless of what happens, you will benefit from the situation. You will, you will be benefited. I love win-win situations, don't you? As a kid, in case you're still, what is a win-win situation? Maybe you have a, a great field trip plan, but snow is in the forecast. So either way, you either have a snow day or you're going on a field trip. Win-win, right? You're on Federal Road down there in Brookfield. You can stop by Chick-fil-A for a milkshake. But if they're too busy, you know what? You could go right up the road to Wendy's and get a Frosty. Win-win, right? Likewise, in the midst of fiery trials, it is always win-win. And I don't say that to be kind of cute and trite or whatever. I really think that Christians need to deeply emblazon that truth in their minds. 
that we are not to see fiery trials the way the world does. That as soon as they happen, we want to get out of them and get them out of our lap. We are to see them as God's perfectly designed situations in our lives that He wants to use in our lives. He sees it as a win-win. So should we. On one hand, God may deliver us out of the trial. He might answer our prayers and bring us a new job, restore a relationship, heal a sickness, and so on. And so that God's people can stand back and say, glory to God how we answered that prayer and how He brought us in a broad place, as David says, because He delighted in me. But on the other hand, even if God, like the Hebrew leader said, even if He doesn't deliver me out of this situation, it is still God we can trust in this time. For example, He might not be answering your prayer request exactly the way you think it should be answered because you will look back later and say, because God had a better plan for this situation. Oh, that we would trust that more in our lives, right? But more importantly, and this is what is really important, God is always using fiery trials to grow us to become more like Christ. What's your fiery trial that you're going through this morning? You've been going through maybe for a long time. Do you think of it that way? But that is how we should as Christians. That God is using these trials to make us become more like Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 28 and 29 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. We love that truth, right? God, he's work, all things are working together for good. Not just to make us happy, friends, but to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus, to make us more like Christ. He wants to use all of these circumstances, the good, bad, and the ugly, to make you more like Christ. That is why we can rejoice in our trials like James 1, 2. We don't enjoy the pain, but we enjoy the fact that in the fiery trial, we are being conformed to the image of Christ. And even if it is God's will for us to die when that day comes, we rejoice because now we are in the presence of the Lord. Death is truly deliverance because the joys of heaven far surpass anything that we can enjoy here on this earth. That's why I think Psalm 34, 19 is completely correct when it says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Win-win. Win-win. But how do we know that? How do we know that for sure? And this is where we go back to Christ. It always goes back to Christ. And we see this here in the story of the fiery furnace. In the story of the fiery furnace, God was with the three men through the presence of the angel. But in the New Testament... God comes to earth Himself. God comes to earth, becomes a man, and reveals more fully who God is like. 
And he also reveals how we are to live as human beings and how far short we fall of the standard that God sets for humanity. In the story of the fiery furnace, God delivers the three Jewish leaders from the fiery furnace. But here's one thing that's interesting. When we come to the New Testament, God promises ultimate deliverance for His people, but it only comes as He abandons His Son. You say, well, why does He not forsake the three Jewish leaders in the fiery furnace, but He forsook His Son? That doesn't sound right, does it? But that's because of how far short we fell of God's standard and God's glory. And this picture that we see of this perfect God who is marvelous in His holiness and His justice and His wrath and the fact that He will punish sin, there will be a day when all of mankind will stand before God and all of mankind stands guilty before Him. So all of mankind must somehow be made right with God. There has to be an atonement for sin. There has to be a substitute for our sin. We can't be it because we fall short of God's glory. So therefore, this God came and stood in our place, Jesus. And He absorbed the fiery furnace on the cross. Friend, do you have any idea what Jesus went through on the cross? That He was willing to endure in those six hours of time all of the sin and all of the righteous judgment and punishment that you and I deserve, He absorbed that on the cross in His own being. That is why He dreaded the cross. That is why He sweated in the Garden of Gethsemane because He knew what He was facing. You say, why would He do that? Because He loves you. And He wants your sins to be wiped away and to be made right with God. And there is no other way other than this Jesus. And when we place our faith in Him, when we realize that I do deserve judgment and I do stand guilty and I want to turn from that and I want to turn to Christ, we can find grace and forgiveness and have all of our sins wiped clean to know that when we stand before Him one day, we will be embraced as sons and daughters of God. Not because of anything we do, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. What a Savior we enjoy. And I would also just add in closing, in the story of the fiery furnace, I mentioned how the king sets up a golden image for all peoples to worship. And oh, we've seen that through the centuries as great leaders set up their kingdoms in hopes that they will be exalted and they crumble to the ground just like all of the other great leaders. It is an effort in futility, but we see that in Revelation chapter 5 and 7 and so on that all of the peoples of the world will be gathered before the throne one day and they will worship this Christ forever and ever. Hallelujah. Does your heart rejoice in that image one day? That thought? God's people rejoicing before the throne for a, with a kingdom that shall never fade or never fail. Let us pray.
Lord, my prayer is that as we have gone through this wonderful and familiar passage of Scripture, that we wouldn't leave here today just saying, oh, that was a great story. But Lord, our confidence in You as our great Deliverer would blossom and expand. Lord, if we have come to know You as Savior and Lord, that we wouldn't be sitting here with trembling knees, wondering, do You care for me? Or doubting hearts but that we would have a steadfast confidence in You as these three men did. That, Lord, You will deliver us out of the trials and show Your glory and Your power, or that even if You don't, You are using them for a greater good. It is always a win-win. And, Lord, my prayer also is that there are people here today who've never really understood the cross and what it was about. That it was about Jesus going to the cross so that they might be delivered from the judgment that might come to them if they never trust in Christ. That today would be the day where they confess, this Jesus is Lord. And every day, or one day in the future, every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Christ. And that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, we just love You and we praise You. We thank You for Your Word that gives us this grand and glorious picture of who You are. May Your church, Your bride, reflect that in our lives. We ask all of this in the wonderful name of Jesus. All God's people said, Amen.